George Mueller was a man of God. Some of you may not be familiar with George Mueller. He was a man that lived in the 1800s, and he was an educator, he was a missionary, he was a pastor, but what he's really known for is the amount of orphanages he started in England. In fact, one writer said this about him in terms of his ministry. He said, quote, he cared for 10,024 orphans during his lifetime and provided educational opportunities for the orphans to the point that he was even accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in British life. He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000, end quote. Now, George Mueller, there's been books written about him, and one of the things that he was known to be marked as a man of God was his tremendous faith. And as he started these orphanages, he had a conviction that he would not any, ask anybody to meet his financial needs for the orphanages. That would be for the structure or for food and whatever else. He would trust God in prayer. And if you read his biography, there is one story after another of how God miraculously provided for over a 30-year period all of the needs of these orphanages without ever making known his need. I can think of one story whereby he was at breakfast with all these kids and there was no food in the house. And they said, Mr. Mueller, where are we going to get some food? He said, well, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And so he prayed. And during his prayer, he said, Lord, I want to thank you in advance that you have provided food for all these kids in Jesus's name. Amen. As soon as he said, amen, there was a knock at the door and there was a man with a bunch of baked goods. And the man said, you know what, for some reason I got up last night and I felt this tremendous burden to bake some food for you and to bring it to your house. Could you use this food? Well, right at the same time, another man followed him up and there was a milk truck that had broken down in front of his house. And the milkman said, I can't do anything with all this milk. It's going to spoil. So I was wondering if your orphanage could use the milk. And this is just one example of how God orchestrated circumstances and events in order to provide for these orphanages. You see, clearly George Mueller was a man of God. If I was to ask you this morning, are you a man or woman of God, what would you say? How would you define a man or woman of God? Well, in the church today, some people would define a man or woman of God as someone who has a bumper sticker that says, what would Jesus do? And there's nothing wrong with having that bumper sticker unless you have road rage. I don't recommend you put it on your car. Some people would define being a man or woman of God as someone who votes Republican. Nothing wrong with voting Republican. Some people would define a man or woman of God who goes to church every Sunday. And obviously that's a good thing. But those things necessarily don't define one to be a man or woman of God. Well, Timothy tells us what the characteristics are of a man or woman of God. So I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we want to specifically look at verses 10 through 16. As I mentioned, next week we'll get back into Galatians chapter 4. But for this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 10 through 16. Now let me give you a little bit of the context of what's going on here. As you remember, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, and Paul here is writing to Timothy in order to encourage him and motivate him because Timothy was in Ephesus. He was dealing with churches that were being infiltrated by false teachers. They were high-powered false teachers, and what he tells them in chapter 1 is, I want you to silence these false teachers because they're teaching bad doctrine, and it's ruining whole households. 
And Timothy struggled with timidity. He didn't have the same personality as Paul. Paul was a type A personality. Timothy was a type B. And so Timothy sort of got discouraged and he needed encouragement. And so Paul here writes to Timothy in order to motivate him, in order to instruct him as to what he's to do so that the church would not fall into disrepute. And what he says here, beginning in verse 11, is he calls Timothy a man of God. Now that phrase, man of God, is a technical term. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to the prophets. In fact, Moses was called a man of God. Elijah was called a man of God. Elisha was called a man of God. And there were a number of others in the Old Testament that were called men of God. And a man of God was someone who was God's man. They were a spokesman for God. They represented God. And Paul is taking that technical phrase from the Old Testament that's applied to the prophets, and he's applying it to Timothy in order to motivate Timothy. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, you are in the long line of prophets. You, my friend, are a man of God. And so he's using that to motivate Timothy to speak the word of God boldly and to deal with the false teachers in Ephesus. Now, in the process of calling him a man of God, what he does is he gives some characteristics of a man or woman of God. Let me share them with you this morning. And my encouragement to you, as I've had to do in my own life, is to measure my life against these characteristics. The first characteristic of a man or woman of God is they flee from sin. Notice, if you will, verses 10 and 11. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice he doesn't say having money is evil. He says it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. When you love money, all kinds of sins flow from that. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he says this, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. You see, the first characteristic of a man or woman of God is they flee from sin. And in the context here, Timothy was battling the false teachers. And if you read the chapter, these false teachers were in the ministry for money. They thought godliness was a means to financial gain. It's no different. Satan is sowing false teachers today on television who are basically making merchandise out of people. And he says, Timothy, if you're going to be a man of God, I don't want you to be like those hucksters. I don't want you to be like those charlatans who are making merchandise out of people, he says, I want you to flee from the love of money. Now, obviously, it's, he's talking about the love of money here, but this could apply to any sin in our life. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 6, he says, flee from sexual immorality. He says in Corinthians, flee from idolatry in chapter 10. No matter what you're talking about, you and I need to always be on the run when it comes to sin. You see, sin has us on its America's most wanted list. Sin's goal is to pursue you and dog you the rest of your life. If you're a Christian, you're never going to get away from the battle of sin if you're committed to Christ and you're living the Christian life. There's always going to be this relentless pursuit with sin in your life. Now, the word here, flee, is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the Greek word, fugo. We get the word fugitive from it. And what he's saying is when it comes to sin, as a Christian who's committed to Christ, we are to be fugitives. We're always on the run because what sin wants to do is it wants to capture you, it wants to imprison you, it wants to incarcerate you, and ultimately put you in bondage to where you'll be ineffective in your service for Jesus Christ. 
And listen, we're all going to battle sin to the day we die. You'll never reach a point in your Christian life where you reach entire sanctification. Some teach this idea that you can get to a point in your Christian life where you don't willfully sin anymore. Nothing could be further from the truth. You're going to battle sin the rest of your life. Now, even though you and I are not sinless, the Bible said we should sin less because we are constantly fleeing from sin. I remember years ago when I first got married, we were living on a church property. I wasn't the pastor. I was serving in the church. And basically, they allowed us to live on the church property. They had a place there in exchange for us mowing the yard. Now, it was a big property kind of like this. And so in exchange for free rent, I had to mow the lawn, and that was a great deal. And I remember one day we got a knock at our door, and this particular gentleman who was from another country was at the door, and he talked about what was going on in his life, and he needed some food. And so Laura and I invited him in. We fed him. And of course, I gave him the gospel message. And he needed a night to stay. And so across from our place was our educational building. We allowed him to stay in the educational building a couple of days. It wasn't going to be long term. And I told Laura, I said, you know, we may be housing somebody from America's Most Wanted and we don't even know it. Well, about two days after seeing him each night, I can't remember if we fed him each night, he disappeared. But here's what was weird. When we went into the room to find out where he was, he left his wallet and a knife. And I thought, this is strange. And so I did some poking around and found out that there was a bench warrant for his arrest. He was a fugitive. He was on the run, not for murder. I forget what it was he did, but he was in this country and there was a bench warrant for his arrest. He was on the run. He was fleeing. And Paul says, you and I, when it comes to sin in our life, we're to be constantly on the run. We're to be fugitives. Because sin is going to dog our steps. And listen, you got to know what your struggle is. We all have weaknesses. We all have temptations. The Bible says no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. In other words, we're all going to battle the same temptations. However, there are some unique temptations that you battle with that are based on your bent and your personality and your genetics. You got to know what those bents are. And the Bible says you have to flee from sin on a regular basis because ultimately sin wants to destroy you. Did you guys read the article this week about the woman who had this as a pet? You'll notice the picture up on the screen. This was her pet. It was a 1,500 pound crocodile or alligator. She was in Indonesia and she was keeping this pet illegally. Well, unfortunately, I don't know all the details because they didn't go into it, but she was eaten by the alligator and it took her life. And I thought that's exactly what sin wants to do. Sin wants to destroy us. Sin wants to incarcerate us, put us in bondage so that we're ineffective in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, Mike, well, how can I flee from sin? I'm not going to overcome it perfectly, but there are some things you can do. Let me share them with you practically. Number one, be serious about fleeing. Be serious about fleeing. If you're not committed and you're not serious, sin is going to rule the day. Secondly, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you read Galatians chapter 5, which we'll get there soon, he says, walk in the Spirit so that you do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You got to be a Spirit-filled Christian. Thirdly, you got to know your weaknesses and you got to walk wisely. Know what your weaknesses are. Is it the opposite sex? Is it lying? Is it stealing? Is it pornography? We all have certain bents, and the Bible says we're to walk wisely. 
Don't put yourself in situations that are going to cause you to compromise your convictions. Then you're to stay connected to God through the Word and in prayer. You and I know as Christians, it's so imperative that we're in the Word, meditating, we're in prayer, because what God does is when we stay abiding in the vine, as the Bible says in John 15, God strengthens us internally when we're meditating on the Scripture and praying. But listen, if we're not in the Word of God on a regular basis, what's going to happen is you're going to become more like the world and you're going to grow spiritually indifferent. Furthermore, if you want to flee from sin effectively, you must deal with sin daily through confession and repentance. Listen, we're all going to blow it, but the Bible says to keep a short account. And listen, not just deal with sin, we got to deal with the root of the problem. And that's often our struggle because it's easy to say, Lord, I blew it, forgive me. But many times we don't want to deal with the root of the problem. If you're having a problem with drinking, you got to get to the root of it. What is going on here? What do I need to cut off in my life if you're having a problem with lust? Maybe it's unbelief, not trusting God. You see, we all have those besetting sins that we need to confess and repent. And then finally, if you're going to flee from sin effectively, you must consistently attend church groups and be accountable to other believers. The Bible talks about not forsaking, assembling together. And listen carefully, Sunday morning is good, but I'm here to tell you it's not enough. Because as we're going to see, we're in a battle, we're in a warfare, and we need the fellowship of believers to help us in our walk with God. And so the first characteristic of a man or woman of God is they flee from sin on a regular basis. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but what it does mean is they're fugitives when it comes to sin. Their goal in life is no longer what it was prior to salvation. See, prior to salvation, your goal was not to flee from sin. Your goal was to fulfill sin. Your goal was to live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now as a Christian, our goal is to flee from it, not flirt with it. And too often we flirt with sin rather than flee from sin. Well, there's a second characteristic of a man or woman of God that Paul here gives Timothy, and that is not only do they flee from sin, but secondly, they follow after spiritual growth. He says in verse 11, but you man of God, Flee from all of this, and then notice the contrast here, and pursue. That word is a strong word in the Greek. It means to go after something with intentionality. It means to pursue something with a vengeance. He says, Timothy, I want you to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You see, the negative is we flee from sin on a daily basis, but the positive is we're constantly pursuing spiritual growth and becoming like Jesus Christ. We're on the run from sin, but we're also pursuing in the opposite direction, becoming like Jesus Christ, which by the way is spiritual growth. If you want to know a simple definition of spiritual growth, it's becoming more like Jesus Christ in your attitudes and your behaviors. And we all struggle with that. Sometimes we make progress and sometimes we seem to revert back and it's this ongoing battle. But listen, spiritual growth, if we're to pursue it, it doesn't happen automatically. Now, I know once we become a Christian, we'd love spiritual growth to happen by osmosis, which means we just put our Bible under our pillow, and we sleep on it, and then we're going to imbibe the Bible, and everything's going to be good. That's not how the Christian life works. You and I have to be intentional about spiritual growth. God's not going to wake you up to do your quiet time. God's not going to make you go to church. God's not going to make you witness or get involved and serve. 
God's not going to make you confess sin. Now, what the Spirit of God will do is the Spirit of God will convict you. The Spirit of God will remind you. The Spirit of God will encourage you. But listen, ultimately, you've got to make a decision that you're going to grow in your walk with God. One of my friends in New Jersey, who's a roofer, struggled with heroin addiction for years. It ruined his marriage. He was a believer, but again, the sin had overtaken him to the point where he was not effective in his walk with God. And one day he was up on a roof. I don't know if he was high or not, but this was God's orchestration. He fell from the ladder and he got a compound fracture in his leg. He said it was very, very gruesome. To this day, he has pins and uh, all those things and plates and everything in his leg. And he said, when he went to the hospital, he said, that's where I detoxed. He said it was embarrassing because no one knew when he went in, he was a heroin addict. But after a couple days when he had withdrawal symptoms, everyone knew on the floor in the hospital that this guy had a heroin addiction. So he said, God exposed my sin publicly. I was embarrassed. He said, but that injury was the best thing that could have happened to me. And so he got out and he's been clean and sober. And one day I was reaching out to him because he was in my small group and I texted him and I said, Hey bro, I said, how are you doing? And here was his response to me. You'll notice it up on the screen. He said, clean and sober. And then notice what he said, love obedience to our Lord. You see, if you and I are going to grow, you got to love obedience. You got to grow. You got to be intentional. There's got to be a movement in that direction. It's not enough just to say no to sin. The Bible says you have to pursue spiritual growth. Now, what are the characteristics he say, says that you and I are to cultivate in our life? And these are all characteristics of spiritual growth and Christlikeness. He says, Timothy, I want you to pursue righteousness. Righteousness means doing the right thing on the outside. Godliness has to do with the attitude of the heart. It has to do with reverence on the inside. So on the outside, we do the right thing. On the inside, God is concerned about our attitude. Then he says, Timothy, pursue faith. Faith means trusting God in spite of what I see. Then he says, love. Love is more than just an emotion. It's a choice to meet the needs of other people regardless of how I feel. It is a decision. That's what agape love is. It's sacrificial. He says, Timothy, pursue endurance. Endurance means bearing up under difficult circumstances and not quitting and not throwing in the towel. And then finally, he says, Timothy, I want you to pursue gentleness. This means to be humble, to be kind. It means to be forgiving. You see, you and I are to pursue spiritual growth. We're to pursue these Christ-like character, characteristics. This came home to me this week when I came home, I believe it was Thursday, I went back outside because I noticed there was a package by my door. And so I got the package. And when I looked up, I saw my wife's car in the driveway. And I noticed that her driver window right there was shattered and there was plastic over it. And what got my attention is when I went to my front door initially, there was a piece of tape on the door and it has a business card from somebody who offers lawn service. And I thought, well, I already have somebody who does my lawn, so I don't need this. But when I noticed the car with the tape where they put the plastic to cover the shadowed window, it was the same tape that was on the front door. And there was a business card on the car. And then I said to myself, ah, this is the person who shattered the window and is letting me know how to reach them. And so I called the person. It was my lawn guy that I already use. And when I called him up, he said, Mike, let me tell you what was going on. He says, I was weed whacking. And he said, it flipped up a rock 
and it just randomly hit the window and it shattered it. And he said, my first response was, what fell out of the sky to cause the window to break? And then he said, oh, then I realized it was me who did it. And he left me his information. Now, here's what I said to him on the phone. I said, I really appreciate the fact that you were honest with me. I said, most people would have not been honest, and I would have never figured out who had done that. I said, but you were honest, and I said, that shows a lot about your character, and he texted me back, and he said, it helps me to sleep at night. Now, listen carefully. I don't know if this guy's a believer. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to witness to him. I don't know if he's a believer, but here's a man that was acting in a way that was honest, and he had integrity. You don't see that in our culture today. How much more should Christians pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, endurance, and hope, which basically is the sum total of spiritual growth? And so are you a man or woman of God this morning? You say, Pastor Mike, how do I know? Number one, are you fleeing from sin, or are you flirting with it, and are you fulfilling it? And then secondly, are you following after spiritual growth or Christ-likeness? Are you pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ? And listen, are you more mature now than you were two years ago? Now, I know you're not where you need to be, and I'm not where I need to be. We all struggle. But would you say that you're moving forward in your Christian life or you're stagnating? Listen, there's no middle ground. Either you're moving forward or you're stagnating or you're regressing backwards. Well, there's a third characteristic he gives of a man or woman of God. And by the way, you say, before I get into that third point, how can I pursue this spiritual growth? Let me give you some suggestions here. You'll notice the growth acrostic, and it is this. If you want to grow, if you want to pursue, you must get connected to God's people. You must read the word daily. You must obey and confess when you don't. You must walk in the Spirit. You must talk to God daily in prayer. And then finally, you must help serve others. You see, it's not enough just to get information. One of the assumptions that we often make in the church today, and we're all guilty of this, is information equals transformation. And that's not always true. You could come to church faithfully year after year, especially in a Calvary chapel where the Word of God is taught systematically. You may get the Word of God and never grow a lick in your life. Because ultimately, growth happens when we apply what we're hearing. You see, information plus involvement equals transformation. Information alone is not going to help me to grow and pursue my walk with God. We've got to apply the truth of God's Word to our life. And so if you want to be a man or woman of God, flee from sin, follow after spiritual growth. Thirdly, I would have you note we're to fight for the faith. We're to fight for the faith. Notice, if you will, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Now, that word in the Greek literally means this, agonize the great agony. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to agonize the great agony. You say, why would he use the word agon in the Greek? Why would he use the word agony? Because the Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is a warfare. We are in a struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, I have to battle this on a weekly basis. I'm always battling lethargy. I'm battling the world. I'm battling the flesh. Marriage is hard work. Raising kids is hard work. Living the Christian life is hard work. And you know what? If it's not hard work, you're not living the Christian life. Because the Bible says we're in a battle against the world forces of this darkness. We're in a titanic struggle, and that's why he says to Timothy, I want you to agonize the great agony. 
In fact, it's an athletic term. It's a military term because there's a warfare going on. It reminded me in high school, I played high school football, and uh, we had some unique battles. This right here is in Miami where I played football growing up. It's right near the Bay of Miami, and you'll notice the star at the top. That's the football field. Here it is looking at it. And I remember we fought, we played against this school called LaSalle High School. They were big, they were strong. And I remember the whole game, it was a titanic struggle. They were up 6 nothing. And I remember this one center, I played linebacker that I went against. He was a big boy. He played in a public school. He ended up transferring, going to this school. The whole game, him and I were colliding. The whole game, we were talking trash. The whole game, we kept colliding with one another. Sometimes he would get the best of me. Sometimes I would get the best of him. And you know what? At the end, two minutes to go in the game, our quarterback threw a touchdown. We won seven to six. It was a stunning upset. And I remember in the Miami Herald the next day in the sports section, it said, it's Westminster. You see, we're in a struggle. We're in a battle. Now, what does he say here when he means fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy? What does he mean, the faith? What is he talking about there? Well, I think there's two things. Number one, he's saying, don't go AWOL spiritually. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4? This was a letter he wrote before he died, before Nero cut his head off. He said, I have fought the good what? Fight. I have run the race and I have kept the faith. In other words, Paul says, I didn't go AWOL spiritually. See, you and I, when we fight the good fight of the faith, it means we don't quit. It means we don't throw in the towel. It means we don't walk away. Or to say it, because I think this is the bigger problem in the American church, we don't coast. We're not lethargic. See, too often in the church, we're lukewarm. We're lethargic. We don't want to make that commitment. We just want to be a Sunday Christian only. And Paul is saying, look, don't go AWOL spiritually. You got to stay in the battle. Fight the good fight of the faith. Yes, it is hard. But remember, as we're going to see, we're laboring in light of eternity. And you know how many Christians are just going through the motions, they're just coasting? It's easier to live a lazy Christian life. In America, there's no persecution. And so our faith is often not tested in this country. That's why I think persecution would be best for America, even though my flesh doesn't want that. It would be good for America because you know what it would do? It would purify the church. We would find out who the real committed Christians are rather than the lukewarmness. And so you have to ask yourself, have I gone AWOL spiritually? You say, of course not. I come to church on Sundays. That doesn't mean you haven't gone AWOL. Do you remember Bergdahl who went AWOL? Do you remember that guy that was in the army or one of the armed forces? He ended up going AWOL. He ended up leaving and Afghanistan forces captured him. And just last year, they finally demoted him from his position. And they decided not to put him in jail but they basically demoted him and they gave him a penalty. He has to pay $1,000 a month because he went AWOL. But I think there's another thing that Paul is talking about here when he says fight the good fight of the faith, and that is this. You and I are to stand for the truth of Christianity. We're to stand for the core doctrines of the faith. In fact, that phrase there, fight the good fight of the faith, in the Greek, it's a definite article, the faith. What is he talking about the faith? He's not talking about your personal faith in God. He's talking about the body of revealed truth, apostolic doctrine that has been passed down to us, we would say today, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
He's saying, Timothy, don't give up on the core doctrines of the faith. Because remember, Timothy was dealing with high-powered false teachers. They were corrupting the truth. And we see that today. There are relentless attacks today on the Bible. Even within the church, where people are denying the inspiration of Scripture. You look at some of our Ivy League schools, like for example, Harvard. Harvard was a school that started off as a missionary training school, and what happened over a period of time, the school became apostate. In fact, here are two books that were written. It's called Finding God at Harvard, Searching for God at Harvard. The one on the left basically says that people at Harvard are searching for God, but it's not the God of the original founders. This man argues that what's going on at Harvard is they reject this idea that Jesus is the only way and that salvation is through him alone. The lady on the right says there's a group of people at Harvard that are standing fast for the truth and they will not compromise the truth. Now, when I talk about core doctrines, listen, Christians are going to debate some of the peripheral doctrines. Did God choose you or did you choose him? When's the rapture going to happen? What about the millennial kingdom? Is tongues for today, is it not? How about modes of baptism? Do we sprinkle or do we dunk? Listen, Christians will have intramural debates with one another about these things, and we can agree to disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. But listen, when it comes to the foundational doctrines, the faith, we cannot negotiate those away. Because once you negotiate those away, what happens is you cut the heart out of Christianity. You say, well, what are those core doctrines? God is a spirit being. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of all. The Bible is the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. The Trinity, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's virgin born. He's sinless. He's coming back again. The Bible says man is a sinner and we're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by our good works. You see, those are the core doctrines that define Christianity. And often those are the ones that are under attack. I see it all the time. Just recently, I listened to a lecture from this man who used to be a Darwinian evolutionist. He became a creationist. He's now a born-again believer. He lectured for 20 minutes, and I was watching the lecture, trying to continually learn. And at the bottom, I read the comments, you should see the attacks on this man. So I said, uh, I can't allow this to happen. So I put in my comments. And man, I have been tacked. In fact, in between service, when I went to my office and I looked at my email, I had all these responses from people going, you're a fool to believe in those fairy tales. I say, okay, let's look at this logically and argue. You see, people today are not necessarily embracing the core doctrines of the faith. And so if you and I are going to be a man or woman of God, we got to fight for the faith. What does that mean? It means don't go AWOL in Christianity. Don't go AWOL in your walk with God. It also means fight for the core doctrines of the faith. And listen, are you listening? Say amen. You got to pass it down to your children. You got to pass the truth down to your kids if you have children. Or you got to disciple the next generation. Here's why. If we don't know what we believe and we don't know the core doctrines of the faith, how are we going to pass it down to the next generation? You say, Pastor Mike, that's your job and John's job. That's why we pay you the big bucks. No, listen, our job is to get you to work. Our job is to encourage you to pass the truth down to the next generation. But listen, if you're going to pass the truth down, you got to know the truth. And how many Christians will Jehovah Witnesses run circles around when they come to the door? Because Christians don't know what they believe and why they believe it. How many Christians will Mormons run circles around 
because Christians don't know what they believe and why they believe it. Listen, we got to take our faith seriously. We got to be able to defend the truth in a loving and gracious way, but we got to take it seriously. We got to fight the good fight of the faith. Listen, that's what a man or woman of God does. Now, you may not be boisterous, you may not be verbal, you may not be out front, you may not write books, that's fine, but I can tell you what you can do. You could pass the truth down to the next generation. Here's a question. Who are you allowing God to use you to influence? In other words, what person are you impacting? You ought to get to a point in your Christian life where you're growing to the point where you're helping others grow. You may not have a formal teaching class, but listen, there's always one person that you could be influencing. You say, how do I know if I'm a man or woman of God? Is it because I vote Republican? Is it because I have a bumper sticker that says, what would Jesus do? Those things aren't bad, but that's not what defines it. Paul says to Timothy, you flee from sin. You follow after growth or virtue. Thirdly, as you fight for the truth, there's a fourth thing that you and I must do if we're going to be men and women of God, and that is we must focus on eternity. We must focus on eternity. Notice what he says here in verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You say, what is he talking about here? Well, Timothy evidently made a good confession. It was probably a public confession. Most commentators believe it was at Timothy's baptism or his ordination. And when he was getting baptized or he was getting ordained and the elders laid their hands on him, Timothy made a public declaration of his commitment and his faith in Jesus Christ and his willingness to follow the Lord in ministry. And so he says, Timothy, you made that good confession. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take hold, and that word take hold means to grip. I want you to take hold of eternal life. He's not talking about get eternal life because Timothy already had eternal life. What does he mean by take hold of eternal life? He's saying, Timothy, live your life in light of eternity. You see, when you and I live our lives in light of eternity, we're taking hold of eternal life. We're not living for the here and now. We're living for the then and there. We allow eternity to define time. And you see, one of our struggles that we all have is we got to pay our bills, we got to raise kids, we go on vacation, all those things are good. But if we're not careful, especially in the American culture, because life is so good for us, we get caught up in the system. We get caught up in what the Germans called the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is the spirit of the age. And what happens is we're not even thinking about the next life. Yeah, we may have casual thoughts, but ultimately, here's the question. If I was to look at your life and you were to look at my life, does my lifestyle indicate that I'm living for eternity and not just for now? And there's two ways to know that. The way I can tell, the way you could tell with me is whether or not I'm living my life in light of eternity is look at my checkbook and look at how I order my priorities. See, my checkbook and how I order my time and my priorities reveals whether or not I'm living for the eternal or simply for the temporal. You say, but Mike, I thought just coming to church was enough. No. Listen, that's only part of the process. Ultimately, if I'm living my life in light of eternity, there's going to be an urgency. Yes, I'm going to enjoy life. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, God has given us all things to richly enjoy. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not against me enjoying life, but what he wants from me is he wants me to live my life in light of eternity. You know, a man who did that was Phil Fiddler. We had his celebration yesterday. 
And I was working at my desk at home the other day, and it dawned on me that I had a bunch of texts from Phil, because Phil and I worked together with outreaches. We would talk on a regular basis. He was a big Clemson fan. I was a big Miami Hurricane fan. And so we would banter back and forth. We would talk on a regular basis via text. So I went through the text, kind of broke my heart as I was going through it. 50 years old, God took him. You don't know the day or the hour. And so Phil lived his life in light of eternity. But as I'm reading the text, he talked about not feeling well. And he says, Mike, I've been up with this cough and I can't get over it. And this, this, and this. And he says, I think it's affecting my liver and my kidneys. It was kind of interesting how he went into this not knowing what was going to happen. But I remember in one of our conversations, we were talking about football. And the Miami Hurricanes football coach is Mark Rick. Mark Rick used to coach the Georgia Bulldogs. Mark Rick got fired from there. He took over the position at Miami, and he was there for three years, and he decided to retire because the pressure was great. And I said to Phil, I said, Phil, you know what's most important with Mark Rick, even though I didn't like the fact that he didn't win, I had to admit that ultimately Mark Rick was a committed born-again Christian, and you know what God would ultimately evaluate Mark Rick on? I told Phil, I said, not his wins and his losses, I said, but ultimately the impact that he made on those players. And one of the things he did for the players was he had Bibles made for each of them who wanted one, and he would emboss their name on the Bible. You see, Mark Rick understood that, yes, wins are important, but more important than that was impacting these gentlemen. And Phil said to me, he said, Mike, I couldn't agree more. And you see, Phil exemplified that. He lived with the sense of urgency. He lived ordering his priorities in light of eternity. How about you? Would you say your checkbook and your time and your priorities reflect eternity, or are you more caught up in the zeitgeist? And listen, what we do for Jesus is ultimately going to last. You're not taking it with you. I'm not taking it with you. Me. Ultimately, what we do for Jesus is going to last. All your possessions are combustible. That's why there needs to be this priority, this urgency to get involved, this urgency to serve. And if I'm not in the scripture, I'm not in prayer, you know what happens? It takes away that urgency. Because I'm telling you, it's so easy in America to get sucked into the vortex of the system. We forget. Well, there's one final characteristic this morning of a man or woman of God, and that is they focus on eternity, but they also are faithful to their calling. A man or woman of God is faithful to fulfill their calling. Notice, if you will, verses 13 and 14. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything. Now, he's about to motivate Timothy. And when somebody says to you, in the sight of God, in other words, what they're saying is God is watching you. Timothy, I want you to understand that your ministry is being done in the sight of God. And Timothy, he's the ultimate one who gives you life. We saw that with Phil. You're here. And listen, the next moment you may be ushered into God's presence. We don't know the day or the hour. So he says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything. Oh, and by the way, Timothy, let me remind you of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, made the good confession. You say, what's he talking about there? Well, you remember Pilate said to him, are you the son of God? And you know what Jesus did? He affirmed who he was. Jesus could have got out of that situation. Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? 
Jesus said you wouldn't have that power unless it was given to you from above. See, Jesus stood his ground. He made the good confession. He did not equivocate, even though he knew it would lead to his ultimate crucifixion. And so he's using this as a motivation to Timothy. Timothy, look at God. He's watching you. He gives you life. He can take your life. And look at Jesus who made the good confession. Now he's going to lower the boom on him here. In verse 13, he's going to give him a military charge. He says, I charge you. That's a military command in the Greek. I charge you. And here is where he calls him to be faithful to his calling. Look at verse 14. To keep this command. What command? All that he said through the epistle of 1 Timothy. I want you to keep this command without spot or blame. How long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. To put it in the vernacular, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to be faithful to your calling. I want you to keep this command and all that I've said to you throughout Timothy, that letter of Timothy, I want you to keep all those injunctions and those commands faithfully. And so you want to know what one of the characteristics of a man or woman of God is? They're faithful to fulfill the calling that God has given them. You say, Mike, I'm not called. You're called. The missionaries are called. Nothing could be further from the truth. Listen, there's two types of callings in the Bible. Number one, there's a general call. God gives us all a general call if we're Christians. You say, what's that general call? The call to be a good spouse, to raise your children to love the Lord. The call to be a good employer or employee. The call to be a good witness for Jesus Christ. The call to share your faith with other people. The call to be a Christian. That's a general call that we all have by default of being a Christian. But then there's a specific call. The specific call is based on the gifts that God has given you and the unique personality that he's given you. God's given everyone in this room who knows Jesus Christ personally a set of spiritual gifts, at least one. And you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to be faithful to fulfill the calling that he's given you. You say, yeah, but is there some mystical calling that I'm to receive? Most people don't get a mystical calling. They try to go in their closets, they contemplate their navel, and they pray and ask God to give them a specific word. God does do that for some people, but you know how God often calls us in a specific way? It's based on the gifts he's given you. What are your gifts? What are your talents? What is your personality? And you know what God wants you to do if you want to be faithful? Is step up and begin to use those gifts. We have a lot of ministries, a lot of needs here. And listen, it may not be an upfront ministry. If you're more introverted, if you're more quiet, some people have intercessory prayer ministries. There are saints throughout church history that have prayed three, four, five hours a day for people around the world. You don't think God's going to honor that when people get to heaven? They may never be known. So it's not always the outward gifts, the showy gifts. God will take the little things that you do, but he wants you to be faithful to the calling that he has given you, whatever that is. And that means, listen carefully, being more than just a Sunday Christian only. God wants you to be motivated. See, that's why, listen carefully, eternity drives time. When I think about where I'm headed, and listen, I turn, I'm going to turn 52 this year, and I realize how time is just moving so fast. And before long, I've got grandkids now, before long, my life's going to be over. 
And so I've asked the Lord, give me at least another 20 years, Lord, at minimum. Give me at least another 20 years to serve you. Why? Because I get one shot to serve you, and then it's eternity. And I don't want to waste that. And yes, it's a battle for me just like it is for you. I want to be faithful. One man that I really respect and admire in Christian history is John Wesley. Most of you have heard of John Wesley. He's the one that God used to start the Methodist movement. And by the way, John Wesley never intended to do that. He broke away from the Anglican Church in England. He never intended to start a movement called the Methodist Church. Why is it called Methodism? Well, you'll notice the picture up on the screen. This is a group of guys that got together at Oxford University back in the 1700s. It was called the Holy Club. John Wesley's the one standing up. Him and his brother Charles. Charles Wesley has written a lot of the hymns that you and I like. They got together, and by the way, this is before John Wesley was even converted. They would get together at Oxford, and they would pray, and they would hold each other accountable. They had a method that they would go through. And so the students would mock them. And they would mock them for their Methodist, their methods. And so that's why they were nicknamed, as a pejorative term, Methodist. They were called the Holy Club. Well, you know what happened to Wesley? Wesley, not converted yet, decides to do a missions trip to Georgia. He goes to Savannah. You can still see the statue of, them, of him there. He wanted to go there. It was an abysmal failure. John Wesley had to come back to England with his tail tucked between his legs. And on the way, he was riding on a boat with a group of people that were on fire for God. They were truly converted. They were called the Moravians. The Moravians, listen to this, had a hundred-year prayer movement. I want you to think about that. They continually prayed for a hundred years. It got passed down to each generation. Well, when the storm hit the boat, the boat threatened to sink. And you know what the Moravians were doing? They were praising God in the midst of the storm, asking God to deliver them. And if not, God, we praise you. We're going into your presence. You know what Wesley was doing? He was scared spitless. Wesley didn't know where he was going to go. And so he got back and he doubted his faith. He was intrigued by the Moravians. And one Sunday night, he went to a church. He reluctantly went. And someone was reading Martin Luther, the German monk, about how you're saved by faith alone. And Wesley gives the famous quote. He says, while I sat there, I felt the Holy Spirit come on me. And he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And he said, I realized that I did have faith in Jesus and that I was truly saved. And from that moment on, God used Wesley to spark one of the greatest awakenings, not only in England, but eventually it came to the U.S. God used him. And you know what? Wesley was faithful. He traveled 250,000 miles on horseback in his life, preached over 10,000 sermons. You may not be called to do what Wesley's called to do. I'm not called to do that. But listen, God has called you, and he wants you to keep the command without spot or blame. That is to be faithful to him and to serve him until he comes back. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a man or woman of God? Of course I am, Pastor Mike. I got a bumper sticker. It says, what would Jesus do? I wear a bracelet. I vote Republican. I'm not for homosexuality. All those things are important, but they're not what define you as a man or woman of God. Paul says you must flee from sin. You must follow after growth or virtue. You must fight for the faith. You must focus on eternity. And then finally, 
You must be faithful to the calling that God has given you. How about you this morning? Are you a man or woman of God? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be committed to being a man or woman of God. Lord, we all admit that we struggle with this at times. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as you've spoken to hearts that, God, we would obey the voice of the Spirit. Change us, Lord. Work in our heart. I pray that we would flee from sin. We would follow after virtue. We would fight for the truth. We would focus on eternity. And we would be faithful to the calling that you have given us. Help us to do that, Father. Lord, as we look at men and women in the past who have served you faithfully in previous generations, they have passed the baton to us. It is up to us to take that baton and run with it. Father, we just thank you for what you're going to do. Continue to work at Calvary Chapel and raising up laborers. In Jesus' name, amen.